All right, church, let's take our seats and pray together. Father, we uh, rejoice that your son, Jesus, is seated at your right hand. He is the lamb who is slain, but who is worthy to receive all glory and power and might and wealth and wisdom and honor now and forevermore. He is worthy. He alone. Lord God, thank you that we can... uh, unite our attention and our affections together to exalt and celebrate uh, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And Lord God, we give thanks for his church, uh, the body of Christ, that we can be a part of it. We thank you that you give gifts from on high, uh, pastors and teachers and evangelists and shepherds to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And today, Lord God, as we consider the relationship between uh, the God-given gifts of church leadership with the congregation of a church, Lord God, uh, would we together uh, have our eyes fixed on the lamb that was slain, the one who is worthy of all honor and glory, and would he, Lord God, unite our church together so that we would move forward in healthy and holy ways for the sake of your name and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 13 is our text of choice today. I'm going to read in a moment uh, Hebrews 13, 7 to 19, but we're really specifically looking at the commands in verse 7 and then in verse uh, 17 to 19. Uh, When I was younger, my family did uh, cross-country skiing competitively, lots of fun. And when I was a child, we had end-of-season uh, carnival races, um, lots of fun as well, and there were some kind of like unique different races they had, one of them that was one of my favorites, my parents in the front row, they'll get a kick that I'm actually mentioning this even, it's called the monster ski, remember the monster ski? So uh, picture a massive set of cross-country skis, but instead of one set of bindings on it so that one person can strap their both other feet in, there's three sets of bindings, so three people can strap their uh, feet in. And there were two skis, so six people, three on one skis, three on the other skis, and it was really like a 100-meter dash, all right? Whoever gets their fastest wins. But the thing with the monster ski, with three people in one set of bindings, you didn't need to be the strongest or the fastest to be able to win. You needed to be the team with the best cooperation. So you could have three weak people beat three fast people if they were able to work together, if they could cooperate and each play their part. Book of Hebrews, written by an author, it's less of a letter like Paul's letter to the Romans, and it's more like a sermon um, that was read in the absence of the preacher not being able to be there. So he wrote his manuscript for his sermon, and it's like me giving this to Matt and say, here you go, Matt, we'll preach my message, right? So this is a sermon of an, uh, from an unknown author who couldn't be with Uh, people that he loved, people that he probably at one point was a pastor with, and this church was struggling. Uh, There was a lot of pressure on them from the societal pressure from their neighbors around them. See, they were from a Jewish background, and their Jewish neighbors were really pressuring them to uh, abandon their newfound faith in Jesus as the true Savior and Messiah and come back to 
the way of Moses. And for a while, this pressure had been there, but previously, this pressure was actually like coal takes pressure and turns into diamonds. Their pressure was actually like refining them, but now, all of a sudden, this pressure wasn't refining them, it was crushing them. And they were starting to get discouraged, and they were starting to get disheartened, and they were starting to lose the will to move on, and they started to wonder, you know, maybe we should stop following the way of Jesus and go back to the way of Moses. So this uh, preacher who was a pastor there but who couldn't be there with them wanted to give a message to them, so he wrote it down and someone else preached it. And uh, he wrote it to really correct them and show how Jesus is supreme and that you can't go back to the old way because the old way has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And now he gets to the end of the letter. And at the end of the letter here in chapter 13, it seems like the, the absent preacher is trying to mend some fractures. Mend some fractures that kind of started to crack in the relationship between the leaders of the church, who he knew and affirmed who were present, and the congregation of the church, who evidently wasn't listening to their leaders when they they were trying to pull the congregation back, back towards Jesus and not drift away into the old Jewish law. And if they were going to advance together, they were going to have to cooperate. So let's read this passage together. Hebrews chapter 13, starting at verse 7 to verse 19. We're really going to focus on verse 7 and then verse 17 to 19, though. This is God's word, and this is what it says. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they, they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. So How? How can church leaders cooperate with their congregation? When this passage talks about leaders, in view is likely the elders of the church. But specifically, the writer is expressing that leaders are people whose authority comes from teaching God's word. So, in view here is likely most specifically elders, but I think it accurately applies to anyone who has that type of leadership position. So dads, you have that leadership position. 
Uh, small group leaders, you have that leadership position. Our ministry staff and directors, uh, Jocelyn and the time that she was in women's ministry and Pia now as she's stepping into women's ministry, they have that influence with God's word. Interim elders, new elder candidates. But we all have a part to play. So I hope today that this is going to be a challenge for all of us in our church. I hope this is going to be a challenge for uh, our new elder candidates, Dennis and Wayne, and for Paul Staten. I hope this is going to be a challenge to the ministry team in Hope Markham. It, it has been to myself and to the rest who lead ministries as well. And I hope this will be a challenge for you as a congregation to know what your responsibility is so that we can cooperate together and advance in the things that God has called us to. So, today, Hebrews 13, verse 7 and 19 is going to mandate three cooperative responsibilities for a congregation with its leadership so that we can advance together. Three cooperative responsibilities. What does church leadership do? What does a congregation do? How do we do it together so that we can advance and the things that God has called us to. Here's the first cooperative responsibility. Ready? When teachability cooperates with integrity, it advances discipleship. Teachability, what a congregation must cultivate. Integrity, what is indispensable for leadership. When teachability cooperates with integrity, it advances discipleship. Look at verse 7 again with me of chapter 13. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So the congregation is commanded to remember those who spoke the word of God to them. But apparently, the, this writer who was not with them, but at once probably a pastor in them, recognized that being a leader isn't just speaking God's word to them from a platform, but it's also living God's word in a way with others through relationship where they can observe you practice what they preach. Consider the outcome of the way of life and imitate their faith. The writer is telling them to remember what they spoke, remember how they lived, and imitate it. See, the true quality of church leadership is not just what they say or what they do, but that what they say matches what they do. The true quality of church leadership is their integrity. Dad, that matters for you too. Small group leader, that matters for you too. For the people that I work with on our staff and the rest of the team that works with Mark as well, that matters for us too. By the grace of God, I believe we've seen this in our interim elders, and it matters also for the new elder candidates too. They must have integrity. What they say is matched with how they live. And a true leader of integrity also is deliberately intentionally relational. That what they say and how they lived is open in an appropriate way So that the church has access into their lives to actually see the outcome of their integrity. 
and so that they can see their marriage and say, I want to imitate that. And that they conceive in how they speak and talk about and use their finances and say, I want, I want that. And they can see their parenting and say, I, I want to imitate that. And they can hear and see the way that they interact with their uh, coworkers and neighbors who aren't Christians and say, I want to imitate that. When teachability cooperates with integrity, it advances discipleship. We grow. Discipleship, when it's done well, is kind of like being trained in a craft, being trained as a master to an apprentice in a trade. I uh, got a nice kitchen knife for Christmas. It's really great. Uh, a lot better than the old kitchen knife that I got. A lot sharper, a lot more durable. Um, if you want a good kitchen knife, you can get something made by a machine, stamped out by a machine, assembled by a machine, sharpened by a machine. You can get that, a good one, at a pretty inexpensive and affordable cost. Uh, but a really good, high-quality life knife that you might see someone use in like a really expensive sushi restaurant, that's not going to be put together by a machine. That's going to be put together by a person. Forged by hand, um, carved and shaped by hand, uh, sharpened by hand, assembled by hand. And while you can get a good knife at an affordable rate that does its job, if you really want to be a skilled chef, you get a handmade one. But in order to be able to continue for generation after generation to be able to make good handmade knives, you need masters who've done it for decades training apprentices. And to be able to apprentice in a craft like this, you need to be able to watch and learn teachably for years. I've even heard it said that before a sushi chef can actually step in and start cutting some salmon, they spend several years just forming the rice. Before they even touch the knife and touch the fish, they're just playing with the rice. Discipleship is kind of like that. If you really want to grow and you really want to learn, you need to understand that you need to be teachable. That there are people in our church, by the grace of God, because of years and experience, have honed the craft and the trade of following Jesus, and that you have something to be able to learn from them. I have something to be able to learn from them. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says that when every disciple is trained, they will become like their master. And this process of discipleship started with our Lord Jesus with 12 people and by the grace of God is a craft and a skill that has been passed down from generation to generation over 20 centuries so that today in the 21st century, we can follow Jesus as Peter and John did in the first century. When integrity, a skilled master, cooperates with teachability, a humble disciple and student, it will advance discipleship. So the question is, are you teachable? Are you willing to listen to the leaders of our church? Do you want to observe the outcome of the way of their life. Now, for Dennis and Wayne and Paul Staten to be able to do that at a church our size, forget who all the people who are going to be here in the next service. Even all the people here, here in this service. Three people cannot adequately disciple a group of people like this. But 
when they disciple with wisdom and disciple the right people or the proper people, then it can ripple out throughout the rest of the church. And they understand, because I heard it said to them by our interim elders, that eventually, for better or for worse, the culture of the community of the church will take on the culture of the community of the plurality of elders. So when they, with integrity and with wisdom, allow other people to see the outcome of the way of their life and hear the words that they say, it will expand out and expand out. And as we are teachable and listen to our small group leaders and ministry directors and pastors, it will advance discipleship. Are you teachable? The best way to test the quality of your teachability is to see how you respond when you're corrected. Because you can pretend to be as teachable as you want as long as someone isn't correcting you. But the reality is, myself included, none of us can fully see ourselves accurately, and we need other people to see what we can't see. And the reality is, none of us know ourselves accurately or know what it means to follow Jesus fully. And we need other people to help point out what we can't see and to teach us what we don't know so that by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, we can obey. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of the way of life and imitate their faith. But here's the, here's the caution. These people weren't. That's why this needed to be written. Verse 9 says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Why? Because they were being led astray by diverse and strange teachings. But to hear the true message, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hold fast to him. To listen, to have other people see where we're straying for Jesus and into strange things that will help us keep the course of discipleship, and it will be up and it will be down, but as we are teachable, we will grow. When teachability cooperates with integrity, it advances discipleship. And this discipleship, I'm thinking of presently, really benefits us personally in your own personal growth. But, as we'll see in the next part, when we cooperate properly when a congregation cooperates with its leadership. It doesn't just affect us personally. It affects us as a community. It benefits us as a community. Here's the second cooperative responsibility to be able to advance together. When deference cooperates with duty, it advances community. When deference cooperates with duty, it advances community, like what the mission of our community is, to glorify God by fulfilling the great commission in the spirit of the great commandment. When a congregation defers to the leadership of its elders, and when the elders faithfully execute their God-given duty, when deference cooperates with duty, it will advance the mission and the impact of our community to glorify God and make disciples of all nations. Let's look at verse 17 and eight, or 17 together. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. All right, so this word obey here 
that the writer says is a command together with submit. But it's a unique type of obedience. All right, so uh, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, dads put this one in the pocket for Father's Day. It says, children, obey your parents. All right? This type of obedience in Colossians 3, verse 20, from children to parents, is obedience really that's merited by a natural position of authority. Being a dad, being a mom is a natural position of authority. This word for obedience here that the writer is using in verse 17 is not the same word as Colossians 3.20 of a natural position of authority. See, leaders with integrity have been given a God-given duty and a God-given authority, but they don't need to lean on their authority to call the church to obey. This word for obedience here can be better understand of Um, choosing to follow because they're convinced with biblical reason. That tells us the type of leader that we're supposed to expect in our church. They don't lean on their authority, that they don't lean on their title and coerce people to obey, but because they speak the word of God and live the word of God, that is a compelling, convincing decision to go where God wants us to go through their leadership. Now, submit is pretty straightforward. It's submit. When we see the outcome of their way of life and the, when our elders are leading us the direction our church needs to go, it's convi- we're convinced that we need to go and we follow them the direction that we need to go. The congregation's job is to follow convincing biblical reasoning and to submit. When deference cooperates with duty, it advances community. See, I'm using the word deference to uh, describe obedience and submission because I think it well uh, kind of encapsulates these two commands. Deference is like yielding, right? Think of uh, driving a car. When you're driving, you yield to the vehicle that has the right of way according to the rules of the road. I remember when I was learning to drive uh, as a younger man, and uh, getting on to the 404 with my driving instructor, and it was really stressful because I was the first time I was ever getting on the highway, and I was very like light on my foot on the on ramp, and I was only maybe 60 or maybe at 80, and then she was telling me it's like get on the pedal. I was like, oh my god, okay. So push the pedal down. All of a sudden, going from 60 really quickly up to 80, but now I got to merge. But the reality is that I don't have the right of way. I need to be able to yield and find the right spot and then get in. As a congregation, deference is the yielding in obedience and submission to the men whom God has given the right of leadership through the duty of their authority by using the word of God to lead us. When deference cooperates with duty, it advances community. So let's talk about now the duty of eldership. Pastor Paul is going to be looking at this in a little more detail next week, but I want to highlight two things that I see in this passage. Look at it with me again. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Uh, The duty of church leadership, and specifically being an elder, it's solemn and it's serious. 
Let's talk about the solemnity of the duty of leadership. It's solemn because leaders are called to watch over your souls. The idea that the writer's getting by in here is really about like a shepherd. A shepherd who stands watch over a sheep. And we as a church need shepherds because our souls are prone to wander. Uh, We're prone to follow the deceitfulness of our own hearts that lead us towards temptation. We're prone to listen to the allure of the world that says and prom- gives, gives big promises that can't deliver, that says we'll really find satisfaction from our soul in, in really searching and finding life by our own means and our own terms. Uh, we're tempted and we can be led astray by the lives of wolves in sheep clothing who look like they are innocent but inwardly are ravenous and can ravage the flock. All of us are prone to wander. All of us need good shepherds. Isaiah 53, verse 6, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. So lest you think that you're the one sheep that doesn't need a shepherd, you might find yourself alone and in trouble real quick. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Here's the good news. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, this is why the type of shepherd that Jesus is. Jesus is the shepherd, as he said in John 10, uh, verse 14. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd who goes and chases after the lost sheep. And it's through Jesus' death and resurrection that our sin of turning away as lost sheep, our sin of rebellion is placed on him. And the suffering that we deserve for our sin, the alienation that we experienced in our sin, Christ suffered himself on the cross. And through his death and through his resurrection, the shepherd of our souls, Jesus, reunites our souls to God so that we are no longer alienated, we are adopted as children, we are no longer condemned, we are justified and forgiven. So that Christ, as the shepherd of our souls, through faith in him and repentance of our sins, reunites us to God and now brings us in as the true flock of God. Christ is our ultimate shepherd, but he has appointed uh, assistant shepherds in his church to watch over his sheep, kind of like sheepdogs, right? A good sheepdog can be able to corral uh, a sheep who are wandering around and get them back into the pen if they've gone astray, and All the shepherd needs to do is sit back and give a few commands, a whistle, a word here, a word there. And the more a sheepdog, you know, spends time with the shepherd and understands the shepherds and his cues and hears his voice, the more he can properly direct the way the shepherd wants the sheep to go. That's what good elders do. It's a solemn duty because they're, responsibility is supposed to reflect the shepherding, sacrificial, protecting, shepherding duty that Jesus has done. It's solemn, but it's also serious. 
Look at the text again. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. There are lots of people who may influence your soul positively, right? Think of a, think of a Bible teacher who you might listen to regularly who's had a positive impact on your soul. Maybe it's a YouTube preach, uh, preacher, or maybe it's a Christian podcaster, or maybe it's uh, someone who has a daily radio program. I'm thankful for the many of the preachers and teachers who have influenced me in, like this, but none of those people will stand before God and have to give an account for how they led you. For as long as you are part of this church, in this place, at this time, the leaders here will have to give an account for how they led you. That's serious. James chapter 3 verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It's solemn because they're watching over souls and it's supposed to reflect the shepherd of, shepherding heart of Christ. And it's serious because they're going to be judged with greater strictness and have to give an account. But it's also joyful if we cooperate properly together. Look at it again. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for there would be no advantage of it. The joy of eldering and leading other people with the word of God is, one, you get to use the gifts that God has assigned to you. Two, that you get to have a front row seat to see God at work in ways that many other people can't. And there's a lot of joy in that if we cooperate together. Leaders are directing the church with integrity. If leaders are directing the church with integrity, but the congregation still refuses to yield instead of giving leadership the right of way so that we can all go the direction God wants us to go, failure to defer to godly leaders will siphon the joy out of their tank, will cause the gears of grumbling to grind that car to a halt, and it could leave our community in a wreck. But when deference cooperates with duty, it advances community. It can advance our community's worship. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, it says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. When we cooperate together to go the direction that God has given to the elders of our church, it will allow us to, in our proper doctrine and proper convictions, to have true worship of who God really is. It will advance the walk of fellowship together in our community. Hebrews chapter 13 talks about the way that we share and worship God through our fellowship. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Deference and duty advances worship, it advances fellowship, it advances the witness of our church. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. This is the type of community that they once had in, here in this church, but this is the type of community that was lost. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 said, For you had compassion on those who were in prison. 
a witness to those who were suffering, and you joyfully accepted the plunder of your property, willing to be persecuted for their faith, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. But all of these things in this church, the advancement of worship and fellowship and witness, even through persecution, wrecked. Because the people were disheartened, disillusioned, discouraged, and when the leadership tried to direct them, they were not cooperative. They would not defer. I believe in better things for Hope Markham. I'm praying that the Lord would advance the discipleship of our church, advance the community of our church, but that's not going to happen unless we rebuild trust in our church between the congregation and its leadership. So this is the last cooperative responsibility for leadership and a congregation. We need to be teachable and cooperate with integrity. The church needs to embrace deference that cooperates with duty, and the church needs to choose prayer that cooperates with honesty. And when prayer cooperates with honesty, it advances trust. Look at verse 18. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So the writer wasn't with them at at this time, but he wanted to be with them. And when I talk about honesty, I don't mean like they're being transparent with the financials or they're giving regular updates. I'm talking about a personal honesty. I'm talking about a relational honesty. And I see this writer expressing a personal honesty with a congregation three way, in three ways. He's, he's honest with his personal reflection of his own conduct. He says, we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Evidently, he was like reflecting and seeing, is there anything in me that was not honorable? Is there anything in me that I did wrong? And in personally reflecting about the way he acted with the church, he was convinced that he had acted with integrity. That personal honesty, though, didn't make him put confidence in himself. His personal honest reflection motivated a honest request for prayer. Because though he lived with integrity, he didn't put his hope and he put his, didn't put his confidence in his integrity. He asked for prayer for the people. Because his job was a solemn one. His job was a serious one. There are ravaging wolves around. There's severe persecution. And even though he was confident in what he did, he knew he couldn't be confident in himself. He needed prayer. Personal reflection, honest reflection, honest request. Pray for us. Pray especially for us. I urge you earnestly to do this. For one reason, because he believed that prayer would restore him sooner to them, but I believe also because he needed prayer to continue in what his duty was. Leaders with integrity actively solicit the prayers of the congregation because they don't put their trust in themselves. And a church with integrity will pray for them. I want to show you how and often a good leader would solicit the prayers of the congregation by sharing a few verses from the Apostle Paul's letters. I found several instances where he was begging people for prayer, actively soliciting prayer. Apostle Paul, great integrity, still deeply needed the prayers 
of the church. Look at these verses. Romans 15, 30 to 31. The Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the, our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 10 to 11. This is some honesty here. He delivered us from such deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. Ephesians six eighteen and 19. To that end, keep alert with me in all perseverance, making supplication for the saints and also for me. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Last one, Philippians 1.19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out to my deliverance. Are you praying for church leadership? Their responsibility is to act with integrity, but leaders with integrity will actively solicit the prayers of the people. Are you praying for them? Honest reflection, an honest request because of an honest heart. He wanted to be reunited with them. He wanted to be restored into relationship with them. And here's how prayer and honesty advance trust. It's really hard to have a closed heart to someone whose heart you're open to in prayer. It's really hard to be cynical towards someone when you're sincerely praying for them. All right, so here's your homework. Pray for your leaders. And I've got eight ways right now that you can start praying for your leaders today. Ready for this? First, pray for a commitment that they would speak the word of God. Second, pray for our church leaders and new church elders that they would lead by example with integrity. Pray also that they would watch over our souls diligently. Fourth, pray that knowing that they will have to give an account that they would lead this church by the fear of God. Pray that they would find joy in their duty even when it's hard. Pray that the hearts of leadership in the congregation would be knit together in trust. Pray that our new elders would persevere in all of these things. And then here's the last one. Uh, they're here today, right? So just like go outside and just ask them like, how can I pray for you? All right? When we cooperate together, it will advance trust. It will advance community, our worship, our fellowship, our mission, our witness and it will advance discipleship, growing up in Christ together. And this can only happen when we choose to cooperate. So, Ho Markham, are you playing your part? Let's stand together. I want to close with a reading of Scripture, and then we'll sing songs. To quote. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, 
working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you brought him from death to life. Thank you that he is the great shepherd of the sheep. Thank you that we have been welcomed into the new covenant with forgiveness of sins and the hope of your return through his blood. Lord God, by these things, would you equip us, Lord God, as a church to do all good that we can do so that you would work in us what is pleasing to your sight. Would you make us a church that cooperates together, a congregation with its leadership, so that in Christ we can advance together and in all that we do, whether that's in trusting relationship or through a growing community or through growth and discipleship, would Christ be glorified in all things. He must increase, we must decrease. In Jesus' name, amen.